Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And here with us today is Jim Nail, Principal Analyst at Forrester, really following up from the conversation with Angelie about what to do about this value-based consumer that is really affecting the way markets work and the way businesses work. Welcome, Jim. Uh, it's great to be here. So, Jim, Angelie described a consumer that cares more about what companies stand for than ever before. And that's been going on for a while, but in, in the current climate, it's been sort of on steroids. What is your take on the existing state of the consumer? Well, this is a real change in what brands are all about fundamentally. You know, in the past, brands have had both rational benefits and then emotional benefits. But those emotional benefits have still been very much about what does the consumer personally get out of it? And what we're seeing now is the brands now have to stand for what does society the broader society, get out of the use of this product that I as a consumer am putting my dollars into. A very different kind of benefit statement at that point Very different kind of benefit statement. And you get into some very gray areas. Uh, let's take uh, organic food. Are people buying it because they think it's healthier, that it's more nutritious for them? Or are they buying it because they don't want pesticides in the environment and they want to promote small farms and things like that? You know, the one side I would say, well, that's a, you know, if it's simply about nutrition and, and my own personal health, that's just a classic, you know, marketing thing. And you would reposition a brand away from, you know, taste or low fat to organic, classic brand repositioning. But when you get into this area of making society better, making the environment better, that is a very different uh, way of communicating what your brand stands for. And then behind the communication, there's a whole raft of operational and process things that have to support that and have the evidence that you are serious about it and it isn't merely marketing fluff. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because when – just going back to your comment about the benefit statement, these are things that are knowable, which is I know my product and I know the benefit statement. There's sufficient feedback loops. I know whether I'm, I am or I'm not delivering those benefits. I can actually see it, whether I'm growing or not and whether customers stay or not. But this idea of tying it to social and social causes or the social climate out there is hard because that social climate is dynamic. It can kind of whipsaw you back and forth based upon events that show up in the press. Uh, there are causes that are near and dear to certain consumers' hearts and not near and dear to others. How does a brand make sense out of what could appear at face value to be kind of chaotic? Yeah. Well, let me ad- address one of the things you, you, you said there about it's, you know, these big lofty kind of goals. And it doesn't actually have to be. My next report that I'm working on right now is looking at four different models of, you know, how do you express those values? And one of the really interesting ones, and one of the poster child of this whole movement, is GE Ecoimagination. But GE does not position that as we're saving the world. They're saying, hey, we are really smart engineers. You know, we are inventive. We are innovative. We see these problems out in the world, and we're going to solve them. And by the way, we're going to make a lot of money. And, and sort of the lesson there is sort of authenticity. They know who they are. They know what they deliver. And they, they have tapped into something important, but they haven't overpromised or sort of gotten way over their skis in terms of the big I'll save the world kind of thing. That's exactly right. And if they tried to go the save the world route, then the environmental committee would go point to all the PCBs and the Hudson for years and all the fight that GE put up uh, with the EPA over decades around that. So they could not authentically claim that idea of saving the world. So, so I get the starting point is 
making sure that it, it is you who you're talking to. It's, it's authentic to you. It's authentic to what you make and to your operations, and what your brand stands for. So you don't want to go again too far over your skis. But that goes to a little bit as what is your product and what is your operation and how well do you know that actually aligns to what commitments you're making out there or what impression you want to leave with people? How do people understand or audit themselves to understand what's in their product and what's in their operations? You really need to start with a solid core of your company's history, its values, its policies. And that's where you're going to, you, you need to be very honest with yourself. You need to be very objective and look at your operations and say, hmm, you know, we're not as good as we could be uh, in this area. Or, you know, uh, we've got these policies around, uh, you know, our employees that, you know, are causing some unintended consequences that we need to, we need to fix. And you need to do that work first. Um, because if you try to go straight out at, well, what do our consumers care about? Let's stand for that. Um, again, it's not authentic. And as consumers then question you, as, as you said, it's, it's a, they're very aggressive these days about you know, testing you and seeing, are you really serious about this? Uh, they find out that it's just a veneer over a bunch of other issues and policies that they don't like. Uh, you've not only not achieved what you were trying to achieve, you've probably damaged your brand more than the good you would have done. Yeah, and there's the apparent example of Pepsi being inauthentic towards sort of social causes and then the response by right. Heineken. But you actually had one in your research I want to dig into, which is Avon, mm-hmm. which really dealt with something that was well-meaning but actually sat within their product, the issues. Right, exactly. And that was a case where uh, they were doing a promotion uh, around breast cancer. And, you know, certainly something that their target audience cares very much about, a very important issue, until their consumers dug into the ingredients in the products that were part of this promotion and found certain ingredients that are suspected of being carcinogens. That's the work Avon should have done first. Can you give an example of an organization who did do that work, who kind of set back, reflected, looked at the things that they Mm -hmm. should be caring about or do care about to their core and then have built that into their operations or processes? You know, I'm, I'm going to go to Chipotle, which may seem like an odd example, because, of course, they had you know, a serious operational issue a uh, year, year and a half ago uh, that they're still recovering from. But their recovery was not just about uh, let's tighten standards, let's go beat up our suppliers. Um, they actually are working very collaboratively with their suppliers, many of whom are very small farms mm. who don't have big laboratories or big you know, resources uh, to improve their operations. So they're working very collaboratively with them and investing a lot of their own management time to help these other companies. So it's not just about the organization, but the ecosystem in which they operate as well. It, exactly. And that, that idea goes back to Michael Porter's uh, idea of shared value, uh, which is a little bit different than shared values. You know, shared value is about if you are creating value with a, an ecosystem, with a group of partners, the sort of past practice of I'm about my bottom line and I've got to deliver for my shareholders. And if I, you know, abuse my suppliers or if I sort of, you know, you know, tighten the screws on them, now I'm being a good businessman. But part of the burning platform here is, is a little bit what we describe with Avon, which is it's not just that the customers are empowered. It's that they're actually serving at some level as the moral compass and they will serve as a detective or a watchdog. That's absolutely right. We're not in a world anymore where some of the stuff can be sort of you know, hidden in the closet, kept in the back room, and you can have a certain degree of confidence that no one will ever find out. 
somebody's going to find out. Yeah, one of the one of the concepts that you and I were talking about earlier was radical transparency. And it seems to me at face value when I first talked to you about it was it was sort of ironic in an area where customers can play the role of detective or watchdog. Transparency is a very tough thing because you don't want to showcase everything because you're just giving them more things to follow, more things to investigate. So let's we talk a little bit about what, what you mean by radical transparency and how important it is in today's climate. And again, as, as you said earlier on, this is not a new thing. This has been coming on for a long time. And if, if people haven't ever read or haven't read in a while Don Tapscott's book, The Naked Corporation, this is a good time to go back and read that. He really foreshadowed this 10, 15 years ago. Um, the, you know, the difference with this radical transparency is that it's not filtered by regulators or you know, state officials or anything. Uh, it is consumers who, with all these tools they have, with the information on the Internet, for all you know, good and bad that that can be, um, they are going to find out. And it's much better for you as a company to invite them into the process and understand what do you want to know? How do you want to get that information rather than try to hide it? And then when it comes out, as you said, you're playing defense. And then almost no matter what actions you take, consumers are going to be suspicious that you're only doing that because they're forced to and that fundamentally there's no real core set of values driving it. It's just, you know, you're trying to you know, protect your bottom line. And that's all you care about. Yeah, I mean, the difference would be in a, in a regulatory process, the regulators will do that same investigation or should do that same investigation. But that's typically hidden behind walls or stuck in sort mm-hmm. of the morass of bureaucracy and rarely will see the light of day ap- after a long process where the company has already been able to position how it's responding. In this process you're describing with consumers, this will be flagged, aired in social networks, amplified with really with some or no due diligence about whether it's truthful or not. And all of a sudden there's a firestorm and the PR, the PR team is not sleeping and that type of thing. So this, this process is, is very different and much more urgent and it can be you know, terribly surprising. Right. And you know, let's not forget examples like Volkswagen. Went through the regulatory process. They filed all the paperwork, but they managed to game the system. Wells Fargo, same thing. You know, all of these you know, uh, pressures to hit the numbers – there were plenty of inside whistleblowers apparently saying that things were not good that the executives ignored. Um, again, those executives probably thought, oh, well, this is just our internal you know, line. We can you know, just sit on this information. It'll never get out. It does. Yeah. And the, the idea of radical transparency is not that you have to declare success. The idea is that you're aware of things mm-hmm. and that you're working things. And, and candidly, it's probably – beneficial to describe the process of it, that it is hard work. So that, because consumers actually want the companies to succeed. They don't want them to fail necessarily. So that radical transparency is not sort of declaring success or only disclosing that which is successful. And in fact, it gains you a lot of credibility when you say, we're trying really hard, we're falling short, but we're keeping at it. And And for me, Starbucks is the great example there. When you read their sustainability reports over the last, you know, five, six years, They've set goals for recycling, energy use, water reduction. Some of them they've made, some of them they haven't. You know, the big one that they have not made is getting the recyclable coffee cup because there's, you know, plastics in it. There's all these things that make it very hard to make that recyclable. But they keep at it and they keep, you know, again, very transparently saying to their customers, we're trying, here's what we're doing, here's why it's not working, here's why it's hard. 
And people really appreciate that honesty and authenticity. Right. And I, I mean, to your earlier point in setting the stage, I mean, consumers are craving that trust, that authenticity with the brand and showing the process, showing that brands are quote unquote human in a way, right? They make mm-hmm. mistakes and they're trying to recover from those mistakes and do the right things. That's what people relate to. That's right. So the audit you're describing can be fairly expansive because you can go to what's in my products, how they're made, what kind of you know environmental footprint am I, am I creating for that product, what do my ecosystem partners do, how do they work, um, how do I advertise, what is the ad versus the, the Pepsi question, where do I place my ads, both in terms of the use of ads in movies and, of course, whoever it's published on TV or whatever the medium is. This is a fairly meaningful audit. This is not just... I want to care about my brand in isolation. This is really looking at forensically the nature of your operations and the full nature of your ecosystem all the way through to who do I advertise to. That's absolutely right. So if a company thinks, oh, we can dash this off, yeah, this quarter we'll focus on this, we'll get it done. Um, They're not doing it right. And this, you know, this has been the problem, I think, with an issue like sustainability for a lot of years. A lot of companies got into it, you know, coming out of like green marketing. Oh, yes, we'll now call it sustainability. So if a company is aware of what they stand for, the issues that they want to stand for, uh, how do they go about understanding the issues of their consumers and then the Venn diagram, right, of mm-hmm. what they want to be talking about in the market or standing for in the market, what their consumers stand for, and then how to prioritize those? Right. That, that's a really, really important exercise. Um, because when you do one of these audits, you will find a very, very long list of areas that you, you could work on and they would need working on. Um, and let me just add, it's not just consumers. It's employees. It's right. shareholders. Stakeholders. It's the whole better, stakeholder. Yep. Better stated. Uh, world, which makes it even more complex. <laughs> right. Just to make this even harder yeah. on people. Um, but fortunately, I mean, there is a discipline that has emerged in the sustainability world called a materiality matrix. And that's where... You do this internal work. You come up with your list of things. Um, you then have conversations or conduct research, you know, classic sort of market research stuff, uh, you know, any of those kinds of tools, um, to identify what those stakeholders consider the most important and the priorities for them. Mm-hmm. And then when you cross those two, now you've got this, this list of issues that are of high importance and high impact based on your analysis, high importance, high priority for your customers, and you can just lay out the whole priority uh, uh, list along those lines. And is there an organization who has done that well in your mind? I use an example in the, in the report of uh, Ford Motor Company. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done a very good job over the last uh, probably five, ten years of looking at their business. And, of course, starting with things like, uh, you know, the chemicals used in, you know, the paints on their cars or uh, the energy used in their factories. Um, but as they've gotten more and more mature on it, they broaden out into really what their whole business is mm. and thinking about you know, the impact of the personal automobile on climate change. And now how do we think about our business in a new way that we can lessen that impact and moving away from being an auto manufacturer to a mobility company? Right. And so they're exploring all sorts of new business models, new kinds of uh, services that they can offer. Mm-hmm. One of the things I struggle with, Jim, is using the materiality matrix, which is one side of the puzzle can be fairly durable, which is what do I stand for? What do I, and what benefits do I deliver? And what do I want to do using your GE example? But the other one on the customer side can be quite volatile. 
one, you have such a diversity of causes. Two is those causes will come and go based upon events or based upon some social meme up or something. So you have this inherent volatility out there. How do I know I have something that's durable as one point? And the second point is um, that it's broad-based enough that I haven't found myself locked into a niche, niche issue that really won't drive the kind of, you know, addressable market or revenue gains that I'm hoping for. Yeah. Well, I think if you have those stakeholder conversations in enough depth and you will find some, some very coarse things to stand on that will stand over time. Now, when you're hit on occasion with some you know, new issue or something, then you have another decision about do I have to jump on that issue now or do I rest on these core things and say important issue, we're focused on these core things that we know are the most important and, you know, it's perfectly legitimate at times to say, sorry, we're not going to engage with that issue. So that can be kind of hard because there are social causes that are durable, social fairness, inequality, women's rights, the environment. And you could sort of rest assured that it was existing two, three, five years ago. It will probably exist in some form, different focus areas over the next two or three years. There's others that will come up and you're just not sure at that moment whether to respond how do I know that I'm on something that it does not have staying power in the materiality matrix? So therefore, I put a lot of energy behind it. I even retool my ecosystem, and that, that cost was really not rewarded. Or the second was it's so niche that I actually spent a lot of money on very few customers that doesn't have a payoff. How do I know these things? How do I make sense of that? Again, if you, if you have a solid core set of values, you can always test those things against those values. Companies have to be very careful not to again, sort of ricochet from issue to issue, because I think, again, consumers take that as you don't really have anything core you stand for. You're just chasing the headline du jour, and that's not the kind of company that I necessarily want to do business Yeah, that's a classic challenge of the fog of war, which is I have to make a lot of decisions in a very short period of time that have high consequence, but you have the fog of war problem, which is I can't make senses. I don't have the time to really understand what's what and what's really not happening at that time and how, how permanent some of these are. Well, I think uh, Anjali's report has some very good guidance in there, too. She lays out what kinds of issues are the most volatile and the most kind of you know, polarizing and you know, which are less so. And so, again, at that core set of values, start with things that are less, you know, less polarizing. Fairness. We all have an innate sense of fairness. Work on that. So, Jim, I do want to return back to something you said because maybe that's the sort of the, the key that connects these things, which is that – Ultimately, there's a benefit to which your product delivers or your service delivers. There's a thing that happens that customers experience, they feel, they have emotional response towards. So it's not just this arbitrary, let me pick this social cause or that social cause. It's connected, using your GE example, mm -hmm. to something I actually accomplished. There's a grounding to this. That's correct. Um, and that is uh, hard work to find what is the core based on your history, based on your, your brand, based on, you know, sometimes how your, you know, founder, you know, believed. You know, companies like Johnson & Johnson have this value statement from actually the, from their founder that's 100 years old. Those things all become part of that statement and become part of that, you know, core that is immutable. And then you need to, obviously, the world changes, new issues come up, but when you can interpret those new things coming at you through a, a core and use that to explain to 
stakeholders. That's an important issue. We're going to engage in it. That one, you know, is not something we can have a big influence over and not something we can then take on. And the thought process of transparency is make that purpose well understood so that as I share out my accomplishments, what I'm focusing on, it's tied to something. Absolutely. Jim, who gets involved? <laughs> that is a short, a short but big question, I assume. Yeah, and it's a long answer. Because again, when consumers are putting companies under the microscope, you know, every action that they take, every policy that they have, any bit of data they can find about the company, uh, it's again, putting out some fluffy marketing message is not going to do it. And ultimately, it has to flow through down through the you know, whole operation. Uh, so it is its operations, its customer service. A great example is Southwest Airlines when they were getting tremendous pressure from Wall Street to charge for luggage. Is that just a financial issue? Is that just a revenue issue? Well, Herb Kelher decided no. He, he decided that if they charged for luggage, and it would increase you know, the cost to their passengers, and it would violate their promise and their purpose of providing freedom to fly about the country. So, you know, that was a case where, you know, operations were actually brought in to find, find me another $300 million dollars in savings, so I don't have to charge for that, and I can still satisfy Wall Street. So going back to your question, Jen, of who does it, you can imagine the executive room, folks sitting down talking about some of these topics, and there's a collective eye roll. Oh, yeah, or, absolutely. Or, or gasp of, yep. we're really going to focus on this when we have to focus on delivering the P&L to investors that equally act as watchdogs and others who want to understand what our growth pattern is and who would hesitate to look at us investing in things that they might feel at first blush are peripheral to driving growth. So how do I reconcile the idea that this can at one one hand feel like something other? And your argument, Jim, is that, no, this is squarely the strategic direction of the company. This has to be dealt with because if not, and you end up playing defense using your Avon example, you could bear unintended, unexpected, significant cost, both in real cost as well as brand cost. So Jim, what does it all mean? Victor, it means that the idea that the business of business is business is over. Business has to think about these other impacts they have on society and to put it in classic economic terms. They have to look at the externalities of their business and realize that they are going to be forced to uh, take responsibility for those externalities by consumers now, not regulators anymore. And if they do that proactively, they can make a statement about the values that their company and their brand stands for. If they are backed into the corner by consumers, then they're playing defense. Thank you, Jim. That was great. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>